Cast. Hey listeners, we're going to be talking a lot about Ethereum today with our guest and crypto in general for that matter. The Ethereum network is the backbone of some of crypto's greatest use cases. So if you're looking for a trustworthy platform to buy and sell Ether in Canada and other cryptocurrencies for that matter, we recommend you check out BitBuy. BitBuy has been servicing Canadians since 2016 and now has over 300,000 registered users. With BitBuy, you can buy and sell Ethereum and other crypto using Interact eTransfer or Bankwire from your existing Canadian financial institution in just minutes. BitBuy is now offering $20 free when you sign up for a new account using the referral code E2. Go to bitbuy.ca or download the app and open an account in a few clicks. Be sure to enter the referral code E2 when creating your account. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is E2, Entrepreneurs Exposed, the podcast. We speak to all kinds of interesting creators and founders doing incredible things in business and beyond. Today on the show is Anthony Diorio, who in 2013 funded and co-founded Ethereum, the decentralized smart contract platform that at its peak hit $350 billion in market cap. Currently, he's the founder and CEO of Decentral, a Toronto-based innovation hub and software development company focused on decentralized tech. In 2018, Anthony further distinguished himself as the winner of the EY Emerging Entrepreneur of the Year Award and made Toronto Life's list of the 50 most influential people. In this one, we discuss the origins of Ethereum, of course, Anthony's problem-solving formula and its micro and macro applications, what his team is working on at Decentral, Anthony's take on Elon Musk's influence in the world of crypto, and so much more. And with that intro out of the way, let's get to the show. Here is Anthony Diorio. Well, why don't we start with what's happening at Decentral? So give listeners uh, a brief overview of Decentral, what you guys are working on, products like Jax and Jax Liberty that you built. What are you working on today? So yeah, um, Decentral started in 2014, and that's when we actually launched the the world's second ATM. And we didn't build it; it was a company out of uh, Ottawa called BitAccess uh, that approached me, and we're working on ATMs and uh, asked me if I wanted to be the first owner as I was setting up a physical location in Toronto uh, called Bitcoin Decentral at the time. And it's uh, it was a, a hub, a place to come together for people excited about decentralized technologies, about Bitcoin, about um, and eventually, I mean, that was the same time that Ethereum. We were starting Ethereum, but it was everything Bitcoin really when that was getting off the ground and very quickly it's, it switched over to, to a lot more than Bitcoin and we dropped the Bitcoin from the title, called it just Decentral. For the last eight years, we've been building infrastructure. Uh, we've been building interfaces, infrastructure, pretty much everything that the internet needed to get off the ground has been the model for what we've been building. The focus is now on the partnerships and the app stores that are needed in order to provide services to our users. So. Jack's Liberty is our flagship product. It's a um, it's an app that's available on seven different platforms from iOS to Android to desktop versions. It's a way for people to uh, be in control of their digital assets. So the, the keys to their crypto is held by the user, not us. So we never take custodianship. For us, it's been partnerships and being able to provide tools that empower people to be in control of their digital lives and, and keeping them in control. And then adding service partners that can provide services that our users want in our platform. And that's how we've operated. It's its partnership model. The better our partners do, the better we do. The more partnerships we offer to our users, the more our users get served with things. 
And we do it in a way that, uh, that, that doesn't hold customer funds, which also has other benefits because now we're not regulated because we don't take custodianship. So that's another positive thing if you can think outside the box is people are regulated because you're holding people's money. We're not. Each individual has their own keys on each individual device. There's no central place that, that can get hacked. And because of that, we don't have a compliance department because we don't hold people's money. Uh, so interface, cloud services, app store, we've been building every level of things that the decentralized world needs uh, to empower people in this new internet that's emerging, this new web three, this new internet that's empowering people to own their identities, own their communications, own their money. When you see companies like Facebook trying to launch their own stablecoin, you know, i.e. Libra, does it scare you? How do you think about it? It doesn't scare me. It's anything that's anybody that's innovating and trying to do things. Um, they're, they're, of course, have a spotlight on them, and there's going to be a lot of pushback. There's the, the concern about how that's going to impact the U.S. dollar, which is one of the major ones, I think. And But they're also, you know, they have to be competitive and, and are in a space and have shareholders that they need to appease every month after month. And they have to get into areas. If they don't do it, others are going to do it. You know, I'm eager to see what's going to happen from it, but no, I'm not scared of it. I think technology can be scary, um, but that's not really one of the things in technology that does scare me. So no, what Facebook's doing isn't, isn't scary to me, but in general, there is some scary things in technology, but I don't worry about it. really. What about, you know, just what's happened recently with Elon Musk and his influence on the space? You know, crypto is all about decentralization. And in fact, what you see is you've got this one central figure having the ability to single-handedly put out a tweet and move the market. So what's happening here and what do you think about Musk's influence? He's got a lot of power and he likes to be um, to, to be exciting and likes to to do things that that um, that ruffle feathers and that's just the way that, that he operates. Um, it's not the way I like to operate. Um, I think he does it to, to not be boring. It's his major thing. He just doesn't want to be boring. He has that power and he's showcasing how there may be flaws in certain things and the way they work. And it, it is what it is. I don't really listen to what he says. I find him more like an actor rather than with a, as a character, rather than actually maybe believing a lot of the things that he's talking about. He's uh, taken something like, like Dogecoin that's really a, just a meme coin. It doesn't, people might say it's got value for different things. I, I don't personally think it's got anything of extreme of a value as compared to something else, but been able to take something that, that, uh, that maybe a lot of people don't think has a lot of value and been able to to kind of exploit you know the system and be able to say hey look what i'm able to do and, and take this and um there's gonna be learning lessons for people that are going to get uh, maybe hurt by by getting in and then um, you know losing money or and but they'll get learning lessons from that and uh it's i guess it's interesting to watch i don't really think it's that fun it's something different and I like to see things that are happening and why they happen and, and what changes come about and things like that happen. So it is what it is. Mm -hmm. What about NFTs? So in past conversations, you've mentioned to me that you think we're in an NFT bubble. That aside, um, there's so much going on in this space. There's a lot of trends, uh, a lot of momentum. Where is this sector going? I purposefully am, am not delving into the NFT side. There's just way too much there. And NFTs were cool for me a few years ago. You know, with with Ethereum, it was one of the things that we realized was going to be happening way back in the day. And I've come up with ideas and concepts for NFTs that, you know, bring together physical goods with, with digital goods, with experiential things. I think that's where the real value is. I'm not too excited about having ownership of a digital item that I can put on my wall and say, I own that. I can still show it. Anybody can show it. But to say I actually own it, it's more of like a collector's kind of thing. 
Um, but it's going to empower a lot of artists and a lot of people, the creators, to be able to, to take something that they couldn't before prove was theirs digitally and be able to now offer it to, to people. So there's going to be a lot of value that does come out of this. But for me personally, my mind is kind of beyond the blockchain space and beyond this. There's enough people that are involved and engulfed in this, in the whole space as a whole, where I feel I, I want to think beyond uh, my time in the crypto space. So I'm purposefully not digging into nft stuff and just it's just not exciting to me but there is going to be a lot of value that does come out of it once it figures itself out and we'll see where where it goes in a couple of years but it's going to be um definitely a game changer when it really does figure out figure itself out and settles down and but i, I do believe there's, there's just no one knows the value of it yet still and it's and it's being figured out mm -hmm. let's move to bitcoin and ethereum um and let's talk about the state of play here so looking at a one-year performance chart for bitcoin and similarly with Ethereum, it's been a crazy run. You've got almost a 600% increase between July of 2020 and April of this year. We then see a big slide to the downside in May. Uh, we've already talked about Musk, so we won't talk about his influence um, on the slide downward. How do you explain this recent correction? Uh, I tend to not get lost on the short term, the short term things. And uh, um, it could be something that's just, it's an overheating that needs to be cooled off. And it's kind of going through a, a very, uh, um, just a, flat phase, um, who knows where it's going to be tomorrow, a month from now. Um, I think consistently over time, it's shown a very interesting trend of just consistently going up uh, over time, long term. And you have fixed and limited supplies that are gaining more utility. Uh, you know how much is going to be in existence. And when you have those things all coming together, I can only see, unless there's something disastrous that really happens, I only see on the long term the increases happening. Um, and that's just what I've been in for 10 years. Um, I got in Bitcoin at 10 bucks. Uh, Ethereum, we started We started it out at, we made up a number of like 25 cents. We just said, let's start it at 25 cents. Uh, you give us 1,000, sorry, give us one Bitcoin, we'll give you 2,000 Ether. That's what we kind of just made up out of the blue back in the day. And it's gone from that that 25 cents-ish, uh, you know, up to the many thousands. And for me, when it, 100 was kind of my marker back in the day, it's like, wow, if this thing gets 100 bucks, <laughs> it's going to be game over. Um, but now we're into the thousands and um, yeah, it, it's just, it's, there's so much being built on Ethereum. It's got its issues, but I think we're going to be getting through those. Um, I think it's, it's, uh, I, 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 I can see it now we're taking uh, Bitcoin in terms of market cap in the future. And it's a, you know, that's not a black or white thing that I'm saying, but it's a, I think there's a good, a good opportunity that that's going to happen. There's just so much more being built on Ethereum uh, that impacts so many other sectors that, that Bitcoin can do. It's a, so I, I have a lot of confidence and faith in it. You talk about Elon having so much control and things, you know, he got a similar situation with Vitalik and for him to guide the project. But on his end, I think you have really a, a, a benevolent, um, very smart, creative person uh, that's, uh, that um, is, is going to kind of take it into, into places that, that he feels it's best. And, and uh, he's going to get the support of a lot of people with what he does. So. I, I, I think it's going to do well. I like to see the competition that, that Ethereum's having. We got things like, like Polkadot, we got things like Cardano and others uh, that, that are, are challenging it and, and people's goal to, to be number one. Um, I just think Ethereum is, is at a higher level than those and it's going to take some time um, and going to take a lot of, uh, a lot of um, moves from other projects to be able to maybe displace it uh, from where it is right now. Anthony, also, you're, you're not the only person that's talking about Ethereum's market cap eclipsing that of Bitcoin's. I mean, Goldman Sachs was just reading a report just before this interview. Uh, Goldman Sachs gives Ether a very, very high chance of overtaking Bitcoin as a dominant store of value, calling it, quote unquote, the Amazon of information. 
So, and also, by the way, what's interesting is over the last month, Ethereum's daily trading volume has exceeded Bitcoin's. So tons of momentum behind Ethereum. Going back to what you were talking about with respect to Vitalik, what was it about meeting Vitalik, reading his white paper, you know, we're going back some time now that got you involved early on and got you to start the first Ethereum meetup group here in Toronto? As I was uh, getting exposed to Bitcoin in the middle of 2012, um, I looked around for a community of peers and, and, and events and stuff. There just wasn't anything out there. It was a, it was a ripe opportunity for me to, to create the community. So I started a Bitcoin meetup group. I put it out on meetup.com. I picked the venue that I had gone to prior to some meetups and it was like six or eight people showed up. Uh, and Vitalik was one of those people. So he was, he was in his teens and very shy. But over the next year, as he had dropped out of university and was traveling the world, and I was traveling the world at conferences, we would run into each other. And he was writing for Bitcoin Magazine through that time. And he was doing articles on some of the stuff that I was doing here in Canada and setting up a national nonprofit for Bitcoin as I expanded out kind of nationally away from Toronto and built a network out through across Canada and then started going more global. We would connect uh, at, the, at the conferences and, and we would connect here in Toronto. And uh, as I started building wallets in 2013, he came into the mix as well and was helping out and doing things for, for my initial company called CryptoKit, which was the precursor to Jax. He was providing a lot of value to us in what we were doing there. And then it was in November, uh, he showed me the white paper to, to Ethereum. And at that time, um, I looked at it. It looked quite interesting to me. I showed it to a friend of mine called Charles Hoskinson, who's uh, became one of the founders as well and is now the founder that started Cardano and AD and, and um, IOHK. And, and he validated it for me. And the three of us, along with two others, Mihai Alize, who was uh, Vitalik's partner with Bitcoin Magazine, and Amir Chetrit, another gentleman that Vitalik had gotten to know from the Color, Color Coins project. The five of us became the, the first five founders of Ethereum. And I funded the project based on a sale of a, of a my first uh, crypto startup a few months earlier that kind of funded things, getting it going towards the crowd sale. So what was it about him? It was uh, reliability. It was smarts. It was his way that he could take uh, extremely complex technologies and put them down into paper and saw the advancement of his writing skills um, from even a 12 month period. He just got so much better. And then validation through others that I trusted in the space through my network. It just was was the wow, this is something super interesting. I'm going to drop building the wallets for now and let's go full on into into getting into doing Ethereum and it uh, Decentral. I was just launching Bitcoin Decentral at the time, so that became the first headquarters. And I started hiring lawyers for Ethereum and started hiring HR, and and, and it came out of that space. And uh, that uh, then took us to the crowd sale. We added three more founders, and but just along the way, Vitalik is just uh, someone who's who's driven by doing cool things, uh, wants to create change, very smart thinker, uh, just a whole package um, with with stuff on the tech side. Perfect storm of me and him and the other guys that have, you know, Gavin Wood, who was one of the founders, who's now Polkadot, and Charles Cardano and Joseph Lubin from Consensus. And it just was a really good team that was put together that was able to carry out what we did. And uh, it was great being part of that, that whole experience. Mm -hmm. You're still here in Toronto, but most of the core development team for Ethereum has now moved on to other places, you know, like New York or Berlin, San Francisco, Singapore, etc. Do you feel compelled to keep some of the mind share here in Canada? Do you feel a sense of responsibility yourself to do that? Well, I left Ethereum in 2015, so I haven't been involved in the project for a number of years. It's been six years now. So for me, um, and, and a lot of the, the, the things that kept me here in Canada is I wanted to do it here in Canada. Now, it's not easy to be in the, 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 this type of space. Um, people that are raising funds, it's very difficult to, to 
do the, the crowd sales or do the things that you need to do. So a lot of people have set up out, out overseas. We had to set up in Switzerland because uh, with Ethereum and we wanted to do the product sale, it was just uncertainty and lack of regulatory clarity and things in Canada that it was much easier for us to do that in Switzerland. And that's what we did. Um, unfortunately, I think it's one of the, the, the saddest things that that we couldn't um, do this in Canada. It's unfortunate given that three of the initial eight founders were, were Canadian and Vitalik Canadian and myself Canadian. So that was unfortunate. And uh, so we set up we set up things in Switzerland, but I've always tried to do things here. And because I don't take others, other people's money for my projects, I didn't have to set up some type of structure. And because I don't hold people's funds and because I don't run exchange services, I'm a software company. And that's how I've developed things in a way that, that and I wanna showcase that you can do that here in Canada and and by not doing some of those other things, I didn't feel a need for me to have to set up in any other country. Uh, it's a challenge. I want to I want to I, I want to see what I can do and help to turn Canada into a, a it's the beacon of the world for solving problems, for for technology, for showing new ways of doing things. And it is my mission and my goal to kind of use Toronto as the testing ground for doing that. So I'm very set on on doing things here in Canada and showcasing what we can do, but not just for Canada and to create jobs and do things here, but to also showcase to the rest of the world what uh, Canadians can do and then take that, take that information to help others to, to also excel and grow. So what do you think the Canadian government can do to make things more accommodative, you know, in terms of legislation, you know, you talked about some of the regulatory barriers here. I mean, if you were thinking short, medium term, um, in order to bring some of this stuff to the forefront, problem solving, innovation, new business, new tech, et cetera, what do you think we have to do here? Well, there's a there's a number of different things. I think that there's some some um, some problems just the way the system works as a whole, where you have governments in here for a certain amount of time, and then new governments come in and they want to do their thing and they want to scrap the things that have happened before. So you don't have this continuance with a lot of things that are happening, and, it, and that makes it that's one thing that's really challenging. I think is with longer term plays that need to be done, it's very challenging when you have this change of government that's happening so frequently. So there's there's systematic issues I think that are that come to play, but then there's also I guess I guess philosophical things. There's you know, I, I, I'm more of a, of a, you know, I think entrepreneurs should be the leaders. I think they're the ones that, that solve problems. I think uh, government want to have plans that are placed on their laps, which is great. And it's up to entrepreneurs to create those plans and hand something over to governments where they say this, this is a no brainer. This makes a lot of sense. And I'm taking it as, as my, my goal to kind of uh, create a, a network of problem solvers. Government, uh, not necessarily do I think are the problem solvers, the creators. It's more about they can enact on things that are brought to them. And that's, what we'd be doing is, is how do they gain more information? How do they gain more knowledge about what's going on in the world? How do they not fear things as much and more about uh, embracing things and listening to people so they understand before doing and taking actions on things they may not know or doing based on fear. So I'm, I'm optimistic and I'm try to be always optimistic and positive with things. So I think there's change that can happen. I'm hoping that I can be an agent of change for, for Canada. And it, it is my challenge, and I feel my duty to kind of bring the skills that I have, uh, that I have, which I think is problem solving, to be able to 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 create the change that's going to impact me, impact my family, impact my my neighbors, and things like that in a positive fashion. To to the end of the day, um, you know, um, grow Canada's place in the world, and and that's that's where my my mission and and, and thing is to be of service uh, to the world, be of service to Canada, and I do it because I like to to do things for people. It makes me happy. And then my problem solving is how I'm going to carry that out. And the goal to me is to create movements and create movements of people that are coming together to help others and be of service and to, to just make life more enjoyable and better for people. Yeah, you know, you mentioned problem solving is one of your unique abilities. I think creating movements is another one. Diving one level deeper into the problem solving formula, this concept of win, win, win. 
How does this get put into practice in terms of triaging problems and having you decide or get clarity on what you'd like to work on first? Yeah. So, I mean, the first step in the thing is, is, is figuring out what I want to be working on, what problem. And that usually comes from kind of for me, either something I want to solve or do or pulling the people that are that I want to that I want to be helping out and say, what are the problems that my local area has or what are the problems that are out there? So getting the data of what people's problems are and then sorting them and then saying, I want to work on this problem. And then it comes down to identifying a problem statement and the different stages that I have. One of the most important is discovery phase and ensuring that I can learn up to 100% of the problem out there from all the stakeholders involved. And then it's just using the piecing together of, of all the different things to be able to figure out how you can create the winning situations for all stakeholders by putting everybody that's good at certain things on that task, making sure that people that are not good at something aren't doing what, what they are maybe doing. And a lot of people, a lot of times people are trying to problem solve, but they're not good at it, like foundations. They're maybe not good at problem solving, but they have they, they, they know they want to do something but they don't know how to actually even get sustainable funding in order to carry it out because they don't know how to problem solve to do that. So it's really a lack of problem solving that needs to be brought forward. And that's that's what I'm hoping to, to get into to, to, to youth is leadership and problem solving are two things that I think are really sorely lacking. My model is called perfect formula. It's the idea that you're trying to get up to a perfect formula. You're striving to get up to 100% of everything that you do. So you've checked all the boxes, you've thought about everybody involved and you're trying to, 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 to get wins for all stakeholders or as many as possible. You're trying to, to say, I thought about that. That's why I'm doing it in this way. So that no one can come back to you and say, you didn't think about that. And if you can do that in a way that is creating value for all stakeholders and everybody, everybody will join you. Movements will be created. And your brand or you as an icon or you as a person are going to get recognized as an agent of change. So I want to sit in between here and kind of provide a new way of looking at it to industry, to different sectors. Of If you do it like this, you'll get what you want. But if you keep doing it the way you're doing it, you're going to be creating people that are not happy with what you're doing. And if you don't have them on your side, your models are deficient. And if your models are deficient, you're going to be struggling. You're going to be fighting. Why not try to get it up towards 100% of what it is you're doing is, is helping everybody along. And it just takes more problem solving to do that. You know, listening to you makes me think back to a conversation we had. This is pre-pandemic when we could actually meet in person. We were talking a little bit about this. And at the time you were mentioning to me, speaking of social capital and people of influence, that Leonardo DiCaprio was involved. A couple of years ago, when I was speaking with him about his problem, I spent a lot of months after that kind of um, going through and solving his problem and presented it to him with, with the problem that I solved. And along the way, I'm like, wait a sec, I got a general problem solving formula here. Why don't I really put this into a framework uh, to solve micro and macro problems? I came up with a framework that's literally, I think, can be used to solve any problem, micro or macro. So I define micro and macro by micro being something that's kind of only impacting me or a couple of people, whereas a macro was one that I try to add the world as. And, and try to figure out how do I add the world as a stakeholder and figure out wins for everybody to get the whole world on board. So that's kind of a larger thing. If I'm working on a sector or working on a thing, I try to figure out how to identify the stakeholders you might think are in the mix, but then how do you add the rest of the world as a stakeholder and try to create that, that winning situation for all people. And it's challenging. The more people you add, the harder it is, but that's the challenge that I enjoy. So from working with, and, and, and basically thinking about his problem, um, it, it led me to this, wait a sec, this goes beyond him. It goes behind this problem. It, it, it's, it, it's actually a general problem that I, formula that I can go now take anywhere in any problem situation and have a much higher chance of creating a better outcome because of my tools, principles, and processes I've developed over the years. Anthony, it's always great to chat with you, man. Appreciate you coming on. If folks want to follow what you're up to at Decentral, um, what you're working on with Perfect Formula, where can they do that? So, so podcasts, searching for me online and YouTube and stuff like that might be good. I do have a Twitter handle. It's uh, Diorio Anthony. So D-I-I-O-R 
I O Anthony, um, but I, I don't really use it use it that much. But you can see some of like house posts in there and things might might be good, and that that might be the best way. Anthony, always great to chat. Enjoy your summer, and to everyone that's listening, thanks so much for tuning in. That's it, guys, for today. Thanks so much for listening. E2 is brought to you by Scriberbase. Want to build recurring revenue for your business? Visit Scriberbase.com for more info. If you enjoy the show, download, share, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also visit us at glow.fm e2 to become a supporter. Until next time, make today count with whatever it is you're working on. Welcome to Ringside with Ray and Prince. My name is Ray Leonard Jr. Oh, is that the no, that's just my dad. My name is Prince Daniels Jr. Daniels again with a big hole. Touchdown! On this show, we come to humanize athletes, entertainers, business executives. We're going to see what makes them tick. Tuesdays, 10 a.m. Pacific time on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, and wherever you get your podcast. We'll see you there. Peace and power. Electric acid. Welcome to Transforming 45, the podcast that celebrates the incredible power of passionate voices. I'm your host, Lisa Boat. Join me in conversation with heart-led humans who share their deeply personal stories of transformation. Transforming 45 is here to uplift, connect, and remind you that it's never too late to write your next chapter. So get ready to be inspired, empowered, and transformed. Join me in this community where through powerful storytelling, we heal and reclaim our inherent magic. Electric acid. Electric acid.